Welcome back to Art Holes. My name is Michael Anthony, and this is the podcast about art and art history with someone who really has no business with an art history podcast. This is Caravaggio Episode 2, and I am really excited for this series. Uh, Episode 1, as you know now, was really just to set the table. We started with the birth of the wee-wee baby Jesus, uh, stridently followed the evolution of the Catholic Church and its integration into secular Europe, uh, stumbled over some speed bumps of repeated Pope murder and our plenary indulgence habit, and the start of the brutal Inquisitions. And now we're here, back in the late 16th century, bathing in blood and butter and the piousness of the Counter-Reformation and to the gills with religious fervor over the win at the Battle of Lepanto. And our last episode ended where our story begins, at the wedding of Fermo Morisi and Lucia Aratori, soon to be parents of Michelangelo Morisi, who will one day be known as Caravaggio. The two big takeaways from the last episode about Michelangelo's parents were the presence of Francesco Sforza, the Marchese of Caravaggio, at the wedding, and also knowing that Fermo Morisi was a stonemason. And we know he was a stonemason and not a more technically skilled artisan like an architect that required more education, not just from the records that survived, but what wasn't present in those records. When Fermo died, his probate records showed that he had, quote, some old ironmason's tools and that he had his own independent workshop in Milan. That he died with only those tools lets us know the early accounts of Fermo that said he was an architect weren't accurate. He may have worked for architects, but he didn't die with any of the books or tools required to be an architect. And that he had an independent workshop means he was probably likely a small business owner like his father, Bernardino Morisi, before him, and he wasn't working directly for any of the powerful families like the Colonas. So Fermo Morisi was just a regular guy. He wasn't even in the more upper, crusty professions, and as a stonemason, his place in society is pretty set. And that makes it much more likely that the Marchese wasn't representing the Sforzas and the Colonas at the wedding to see Fermo. He was at the wedding for Lucia Aratori. Lucia's family was from Caravaggio, which explains why the wedding was there and not Milan, where Fermo was from. And we'll get into this in a bit, but think of Caravaggio the town as an outskirt suburb of Milan. Lucia's father, Giovanni Giacomo Aratori, was a well-known land surveyor in Milan and the surrounding areas, and he worked directly for the Colonas. He was educated and a local religious leader, and was part of a local administrative body in Caravaggio that oversaw a, I'm going to call it a tourist attraction, but that's probably dismissive. Apparently in 1432, a local peasant girl had a vision of the Virgin Mary, and a freshwater spring spontaneously appeared at the spot of her vision. And we've got to remember, back then, fresh water was at a premium. The quality of most drinking water was abhorrent. So if you drank stagnant water and got some sort of weird parasite or dysentery, no amount of bloodletting, leeching, or prayers was going to help. You were screwed. So this new spring, this was a huge deal. And to fully maximize the return in this situation, the town put up a shrine to commemorate the miracle, and the Santa Maria della Fontana became one of the main tourist attractions in Caravaggio. Because the only thing better than a potable drinking water source is profiting off of it in any way possible, and Giovanni Eritori was one of the administrators of that. He also held a position in the commune, the local government in the area, as a treasurer, counselor, and liaison to the Spanish authorities. At that point, the Duchy of Milan was under the control of King Philip II of Spain. That's the guy who was the half-brother of John of Austria, and we are not done talking about John of Austria yet. What the fuck did I do wrong? Tell me! And so Giovanni served as the local bridge between Francesca Sforza, the Marchese, and the government of Spain, which was a pretty big deal. 
But those are all business connections, and the tides of those relationships can ebb and flow, and it probably doesn't fully explain why Costanza Colonna would make some of the choices she does in this story. I'm sure Giovanni's connections helped, but it's the relationship between Margarita Aratori, Giovanni's other daughter and Lucia's sister, that probably explains the bond quite a bit better. Margarita lived at Costanza the Marchese's house for years, and she was the wet nurse for Costanza's sons. One of the sons, Fabrizio Sforza Colonna, uh, he became a famous knight of the Order of St. John, so he was able to continue and bolster the Colonna and Sforza names, extend the bloodline, and that stuff really mattered to these people. So she doesn't just live there and work as a regular member of the staff, Margarita breastfed and kept Costanza's sons alive. But beyond nourishing her children, which granted, pretty important, Margarita became a friend to Costanza. This was a 13-year-old girl who was married off against her will. The same girl who wrote to her father, Mark Antonio, the hero of the Battle of Lepanto and trophy boy of the Counter-Reformation, quote, If you do not free me from this house and husband, I shall kill myself and I care little if I lose my soul with my life. Here is a girl and then a young woman who, even though she was incredibly rich, her life was not necessarily pleasant. But Costanza did eventually care for her life and her daily sanity, and Margarita Eritori was there for her as a friend. Even as of 1601, long after Margarita worked for Costanza Colonna, they would always write each other letters, and they kept in touch, and this was a bond of friendship and motherhood. And I am not a mother, so I can only speculate as to what that connection is like, but I feel like it definitely adds a layer. And this connection also meant that Costanza was very likely around quite a bit while Michelangelo grew up, so the bond between the Colonna and Marisi families is layered both professionally and personally. Which may very well explain why when Michelangelo does some dumb shit later on, and then some even dumber shit, and then really outdoes himself, Costanza continues to step in. Because unlike every other person in Michelangelo's life, Costanza never asks anything of him. She doesn't try to get a single painting, so we can't really accuse her of that level of self-interest. She probably felt maternal towards him, even though he's a grown-ass man and shouldn't require constant mommying. And to get to that conclusion, these researchers had to take snapshots in history and all these clues and put together a story of why some of this stuff happened. And it was a blast to read. It was like a combination of inductive logic and psychology. And for me, the what and when and where are important, but I almost always want to know more about the why. And from all of that, we could better understand why Francesca Sforza was at Lucia and Fermo's wedding. And it also means that Fermo is marrying into a really good situation right now. This is a big day for him. This was actually Fermo Marisi's second marriage. His first marriage was a few years earlier in 1563 to a woman named Madalena Vacchi, and they had two daughters, Margarita and Caterina. But then really soon after, in 1565, Madalena died. Nobody's sure what happened, but that really sucks. And now Fermo's doing the single dad thing. He's dilfing around, raising Caterina and Margarita, until two years after that, Caterina dies. Again, we don't know of what. So this is a real shit moment for Fermo, and I promise I'm looking for an artist whose story doesn't start with a bunch of kid death, but it's not easy. Now it's just Fermo and Margarita, and that's a tough situation for everybody, but the family starts to reform when Fermo and Lucia meet. And when they eventually marry in 1571 at the Sante Pietro e Paolo Church, Margarita was at the ceremony too, and we're having the beginnings of a new nuclear family. Soon after the wedding, the new family moved to a two-bedroom apartment in Milan that had an attic, which Fermo used as his workshop. 
And not too long after the Marisi start their new life together, on September 29, 1571, on the day of the feast of the Archangel Michael, they have a son that they name Michelangelo. He wasn't named after Michelangelo Buonarotti, the David Sistine Chapel guy, but later in life Caravaggio is acutely aware of their shared name, and it does become a form of competition. And I know it's kind of confusing to call him Michelangelo when he's known as Caravaggio, and he's also the lesser-known Michelangelo, but that's just for early on. We can switch when he leaves town. Soon after Michelangelo was born, Lucia gave birth to another boy named Giovanni Battista in 1572. Lucia gets a short break from childbirth, until a few years later in 1574, Michelangelo gets a sister. Fermo and Lucia have a little girl that they name Caterina. And I didn't mess up my notes or forget Katerina died in this story about three minutes ago. They made themselves a bonus Katerina because the first one broke. And there's no way Lucia didn't know about the first Katerina. So I'm not 100% sure who was in the driver's seat on this one, but it was a weird call. So now we have a budding northern Italian family, and the Marisi's are spending time both in Caravaggio and in Milan. Caravaggio, as a town, was rural, rustic Italian countryside. It was previously a Roman outpost, but was now much more agriculturally driven. This was the kind of countryside town where a significant section of the population was involved in farming, and they grew a little bit of everything. It was an important source of food generally for the Duchy of Milan, and also a source of grain for the Spanish troops who were stationed there. And they also had these giant groves of mulberry trees that were used in order to grow and feed silkworms, which were sent off to Milan for the silk and textile industry. It was a quiet and peaceful town full of people who loved God and nature and tilling the earth. It was, it was basically the Shire, but they wanted Jesus to visit instead of Gandalf. A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Milan, on the other hand, Milan was complicated. The Marisi's two-bedroom apartment was surrounded by about 100,000 people, which was roughly the same size as Paris or London. It was a city that was full of industry, the arts, manufacturing, and being so far north in Italy, it was also very close to Switzerland, which was a Protestant kingdom. But the more pressing concern was Protestant France. So Milan was heavily fortified and was considered one of the more important cities in defense of the Roman Catholic Church generally, but also territory controlled by Catholic Spain which of course meant that there were a ton of soldiers in the city and a huge industry for making swords and armor, and it was a city that we can safely say was probably familiar with violence. There's also another side to Milan, uh, a part that Michelangelo is a little too young to clock right now, but we're going to talk about it soon. So this is the world Michelangelo and the rest of the Marisis are living in. Uh, they're visiting the countryside where their extended family lives and living in the bustling late 16th century metropolis of a northern Italian Catholic stronghold. Fermo and Lucia have another son, uh, Giovanni Pietro. So now it's Margarita, Giovanni Battista, Michelangelo, Bonus Caterina, and little Giovanni. They are a happy, blended family, and they have everything to look forward to. And if you've listened to the show before, you know exactly where this is headed. But this time, it starts with maybe the worst cameo appearance in the show so far. Head of the Holy League Navy, Mark Antonio Colonna's boss at the Battle of Lepanto, John of Austria. It's showtime. In the summer of 1576, when Michelangelo was five, John of Austria announced he was visiting Milan. And everybody wanted a glimpse of the war hero, so people in the immediate area came, and there were even pilgrimages to see him. There was a giant jubilee, and that's how important that battle was. Within a few days of John of Austria's visit, some people in Milan started to get a fever and the chills. It's not a tumor. 
not a tumor at all. Then they started to get severe vomiting and diarrhea. And as those symptoms began to spread from house to house, the first that were sick began to have little bubbles of blood and pus stick out from the lymph nodes in their necks, armpits, and groins. And as they started to internally hemorrhage and tissue damage ravaged their insides, dark blue splotches covered their bodies and they were dead within days. When John of Austria sailed from Sicily to Milan for what I can only imagine was a victory tour and PR campaign, he brought Yersinia pestis with him, also known as the bubonic plague. One of us is in deep trouble. The plague that I think most of us think of was actually the second plague pandemic, but both were caused by the Yersinia pestis bacteria. The first was the plague of Justinian in the 6th and 7th century. It hit hardest in the Eastern Roman Empire and the Sasanian Empire, which was more or less the last iteration of a kingdom in the Persian Empire, and by the time the plague subsided a few hundred years later, it had wiped out about 20% of the world's population. The second plague pandemic, the one that John of Austria brought to Milan, that started in Central Asia and spread across the Silk Road until it reached Europe in 1348. This time around, there were way more cities and condensed population centers in Europe, and more interconnected commerce and trade routes, and quicker travel across the Mediterranean. So for a bacteria that was as contagious as Yersinia pestis was, it took no time at all to spread like a forest fire through such a small and concentrated continent. Within four years, it wiped out upwards of half the population of Europe, and it was the almost guaranteed death sentence as soon as you had symptoms and the dark-colored splotches on your skin from blood pooling, that's where the name Black Death came from. So with all of that, all the history and the death and near-societal collapse in a cataclysmic pandemic that not only shut down Europe but killed half of it, and people honestly believed it was the end of the world. So again, with all of that, you would think a guy like John of Austria would take at least a few base-level precautions, especially when leaving a city that had the plague. Which Sicily did, and John of Austria brought it to Milan. But not just in flea-ridden dirty laundry, there were a number of the ship's crew who were already near death. So John of Austria, he is not making very good leadership decisions. Come on, come on. Kill me, I'm here, kill me! I'm here! Kill me! It looks like they hoped to contain the disease to just the sailors, but as the symptoms started to spread, John of Austria gathered up a bunch of the Milanese nobles and the regional Spanish government in the city, and they got on the ships and they got the fuck out of town. Run! Go! Get to the chopper! Oh, and the members of the Senate of Milan, and also the government's health tribunal, they were fully aware that Sir John of Death brought the plague to Milan. But since they were under Spanish rule, they didn't want to embarrass Philip II of Spain, John's half-brother. Who is your daddy, and what does he do? So they had to come up with an excuse for what caused it. They needed a fall guy. So they continued the trend in history that got more believable each time because of self-perpetuation and blamed the Jewish population of the city because everyone's an asshole. The story they came up with was that Jewish people brought the plague from Venice where they were trading in household goods. They then traded those household goods in Mantua, and a Jewish guy brought the plague and presumably household goods to Milan, which is obviously a horseshit story, and the local leaders and health department knew it. And I also have no idea what was going on with the household goods thing. I don't know if it was a stereotype back then, like, well, you know, all those Jews and their household goods. The whole thing is just so dumb. But because we're in the time of idiots, it wasn't really that tough of a sell, because there had long been rumors throughout the Middle Ages that the Black Death began with Jewish people purposely spreading plague as a terrorist attack. 
And that false Jewish terrorist rumor was so widespread throughout the Middle Ages, they actually had a name for it. Untori, which means unguent spreader. People weren't positive that was happening this time, but an eyewitness named Paolo Biscola did say, quote, It is said that there were certain men who went about touching the walls, gates, and streets with artificial unguents. You Jew motherfucker, you! Apparently, it is just way easier to foster bigotry and fear than to actually solve a goddamn problem. As the plague tore through Milan, everyone was trapped, including the Marisis, because the regional archbishop, a guy named Carlo Borromeo, shut the city down, which is a crazy display of power. And it's not like there wasn't a secular authority in the city to make that call. There was. It's just the church runs shit anyway, especially this guy, and especially in Milan. Carlo Borromeo was a local. He was born and raised in Milan to a wealthy and influential family, and he was destined for the priesthood and to be one of the church's leaders. It didn't hurt that his uncle was Pope Pius IV, so that might have had something to do with the fact that he was made a cardinal in his 20s. And for a while, he's just kind of hanging out and not taking the whole religion thing too seriously until the death of his brother, which completely throws him and flips a switch. And from then on, Borromeo becomes insanely devout and pious, and when he comes back to Milan in 1565 as the archbishop, he was the epitome of the Counter-Reformation and enforced its edicts militantly. He not only reinstated the right of the archbishop to have his own private army with no restriction on their use, but he even got the pope to agree that Borromeo alone had jurisdiction over any religious crimes that occurred in the duchy. But by implication, that meant that the Spanish Inquisitions didn't touch Milan because the pope said they had no authority there. And that drove the idea home even further in people's minds that Borromeo was more powerful than Philip II, but also their savior because people had heard the stories of the Judas Cradles and the Hot Pincers. And to his credit, Borromeo truly believed in living a life of Jesus, and he was a compassionate Christian when it came to feeding the poor and making sure people had access to what I guess could be considered healthcare. But he wasn't above setting people on fire when the situation called for it because of heresy and blasphemy, and that was not tolerated, but I think that only happened once. And granted, that's one time too many when counting how many people you've set ablaze, but for the time period, we're going to count that as a win. Even though Borromeo had the entire Duchy of Milan under his control, militarily, legally, spiritually, you could make an argument that the people of Milan loved him. He lived day to day like a pauper when compared to most church leaders, and to show everyone that no one was above being like Jesus, he would even wash people's feet. And I'm not a big foot person, so I probably would not have done well in the Counter-Reformation, but to hand wash the feet of the people who you in theory rule over, who have been walking around all day and God knows what, you're going to win over some hearts and minds. So when Borromeo shut the gates of Milan, he didn't just do it with the power of his private army, he did it with the trust and respect of the people, knowing full well a lot of them were going to die horrible deaths. And shutting down Milan was really the only option. There was the very real possibility that every single person in the city could die. But if you let people out, the other 800,000 people in the rest of the duchy and really the rest of Europe were totally at risk. Borromeo also stopped the it was caused by the Jews rumor and instead told everyone that the plague was brought about because they haven't been good enough Catholics and this was a punishment from God. So still not helpful, but at least it's not absurdly anti-Semitic. Milan quickly devolved from a bustling city to a nightmarish hellscape of mass death and violence. There were carts full of dead bodies being pushed around the city, and people were just dying on the streets. And the people in charge of clearing those bodies and digging graves, they were called the Minati. And when they would visit houses to pick up bodies, they would end up robbing the places and raping the women who were left. 
As awful and disastrous as this is, it is also not rare. This is exactly what would happen when the plague hit cities back then. By the end of this outbreak, 10,000 people in Milan will have died, and thousands more in the areas surrounding it. But it would have been a lot worse if Borromeo wasn't there to enforce really draconian measures. His private army took complete control of the city, and women were quarantined, which sounds kind of dick, but without women, you really have no population. And then he sent out the Spiri, which were the local police, to try and crack down on the Minati, raping and robbing everyone. And most importantly, he reopened the Lazaretto, which was a kind of a large prison structure on a moated island. And in the Lazaretto is where he stashed all the homeless people. And again, sounds kind of dick to just imprison the homeless. But these were the people who had nowhere to isolate themselves as best they could from the contagious. So they were the most likely to get sick and die and further spread the plague. He is not trying to be nice. He is trying to keep people alive, and he is a ruthlessly efficient bureaucrat in doing it. But right now we need to worry about the Marisis. They're in a city that is in absolute chaos, and Michelangelo, really for the next year, is surrounded by horrific death, never knowing if and when it'll take him or his family next. After about a year of living in terror, the entire Marisi family survived the plague in Milan, and when the travel restrictions were lifted, they made their way to Caravaggio. And I'm sure that trip was full of relief and optimism that they were out of the woods, and they were, until October of 1577, when Michelangelo was six years old, and the plague finally caught up to the Marisi family. The first to die was Fermo's brother Pietro. Then on October 20th, Fermo's father Bernardino died, and a few hours after that, Fermo Marisi died as well. So not only was every father figure that Michelangelo knew systematically wiped out, but Lucia was left to take care of Michelangelo, Giovanni Battista, Giovanni, Bonus Caterina, and her stepdaughter Margarita all on her own. Eventually, Margarita was pawned off at another relative, and after settling some debts, Lucia had money left over from Fermo's estate and also some modest pieces of land that they owned. So the remaining Marisi family members stay in Caravaggio to be close to Lucia's family, where hopefully they can get some sort of help surviving. And look, I have no idea what kind of hands-on parenting happened in the 1570s, but I have to imagine when you lose every close male figure in your life and your mother is just trying to keep everyone alive all on her own, you are probably not getting the kind of constant guidance that helps you develop into a well-adjusted adult, which, spoiler alert, he does not become one of those. We can't say for sure that Michelangelo received a formal education in Caravaggio at this time, but it's likely he did go to some sort of grammar school. It was actually Borromeo who established and really enforced early education all over the duchy because he thought that more educated souls were less likely to be corrupted. And Giovanni Battista, he was documented as being educated and going to one of these schools when he was young, and Michelangelo gave some context clues later in life that he did as well. At this point in the story, the family begins to drift as the Marisi boys started to figure out what they wanted to do with their lives. And Bonus Caterina doesn't really get that choice because we're in the 1580s right now and the options for women were basically housewife or sex worker. Giovanni Battista was the first of the kids to bail in 1583 when he decided he wanted to go to seminary school and have a life in the church. It was after the Protestant Reformation that the church realized it was a good idea to have educated priests that could actually answer questions, better to give an informed nonsense answer rather than a rambling, clearly making stuff up nonsense answer. So in 1556 at the Council of Trent, the word seminary was first used to describe a formal ecclesiastical education. And on July 15th of the 23rd session of the council, the church put forth a number of educational requirements and regulations, including how these new schools would be funded, what they would teach, what the administrative structure would be like, things like that. 
And since the age requirement for entry was set at only 12 years old, Giovanni Battista went off to his little boy service somewhere in the church. Obviously, I have concerns about this, but it would be irresponsible to not acknowledge the time that we're in. Kids weren't leaving the house at 18. If you were 13 and didn't have a 40-year plan, it was an issue. In 1584, Michelangelo decided that he wanted to become an artist, but you didn't just go to art school back then. The first art school in Italy was the Accademia di Bella Arti di Firenze that opened in Florence in 1563. And I know I butchered that name, and probably every Italian name before it, and I will continue to butcher names. I thought about it, and honestly, I figured it would be better to sound as ignorant as I actually am, rather than sound like I just came back from studying abroad last semester. I feel like that is way more annoying. So moving forward in this series, just, yeah, there's going to be a shocking misuse of vowels. I am terrified at some of the names I'm going to have to pronounce over the next however many episodes. It is not going to be pretty. But if you wanted to be an artist at this time, it meant that you had to find yourself an apprenticeship with a dominus or master. And on April 6th, Lucia and the 13-year-old Michelangelo signed an apprenticeship contract with Simone Petterzano, an artist in Milan. Michelangelo signed up to not only stay and live with Petterzano, but to dedicate his life to the hallowed profession and train as an artist, quote, Night and day, according to the custom of said art, well and faithfully, and that he will commit no deceit or fraud upon the goods of the said master Simone, unquote. More or less, do your job and don't steal my shit. And in return, Petterzano would support Michelangelo at home and in the studio and teach him how to be an artist for four years. And at that point, he'd be as qualified as he could be to start working professionally in the studio of another artist. And all of this would be great if Michelangelo showed any natural talent for art. Usually the masters or dominuses would pay the families for the students' apprenticeships, but in this instance, Lucia had to pay Petterzano 24 gold scudi each year. And best guesstimation on that in today's dollars, which is kind of impossible because money played a different role back then and purchasing power is tough to estimate over centuries. So I know this is an impossible estimation and economists don't have kittens, but 24 scudi is roughly like $5,000. Probably. And the fact that Lucia had to pay Petterzano that amount rather than the other way around likely meant that Michelangelo showed little to no aptitude for art. Which would have been fine if Petterzano was a well-renowned and great artist and teacher, but he wasn't. And this is the perfect time to step back and orient ourselves as to where Western art is in 1584. It'll give us a little insight as to where Petterzano stood. The last really significant art period in Europe was the Renaissance, which peaked during the High Renaissance, which just sounds like more Renaissance to me, but what do I know? The High Renaissance was a culmination of the evolution of art technology and techniques to date, and it combined a real competitiveness between geniuses that occurred between 1489-ish to 1520. This was a booming time for art. New colors were being discovered as people began mixing new pigments that were identified through trading along the Silk Road. And people were getting really experimental. They'd mash up different insects and dried up plants and mess around with the lapis lazuli stone, which gave a really rich blue pigment called lazuline blue. Then a major development happened, and it was when oil paint started to be used instead of tempera, and that allowed artists to paint with much greater detail. Oil paints were used as early as the 5th century in Afghanistan, but they weren't really used for purposes of painting on panels or canvas to the extent that we know it until much later. Before the Renaissance development, people were primarily painting on canvas and panels with tempera, which is a mix that's usually pigment, a little water, a dash of vinegar, and egg yolks, and that's why old paintings look all crusty and not awesome. 
artists were using egg yolks to capture complex images like the human face, so they were limited in how they could apply it. You can only do so much with tempera based on the viscosity and flow behavior. It wasn't until Jan van Eyck, who was a Flemish painter, started using oil paint in his paintings that people saw what was possible. One of the major advantages was that oil paint stayed wet longer, so it was easier to blend and mix and change colors and textures. It was also way easier to remove the paint once it was on, if you made a mistake or wanted to change something, even if it was dry, and it was way more workable than tempera when you were actually painting. With way better materials, artists could try new things, push boundaries, and bring techniques to another level. High Renaissance art combined everything that people had learned within Western art and whatever influences they took from Eastern art. And artists in the Renaissance, like Da Vinci, Titian, the other Michelangelo, Raphael, they wanted to be the apex of everything in art to date, all at once, which was almost a sociopathic level of ambition. I'll post a few paintings for this episode's post from this time, and it's at Artholes Podcast, maybe something from Raphael or Titian. The most impressive part of that extreme lofty ambition is the same reason why people still talk about those artists today, because they actually achieved it. They combined sfumato, which is a very finely blended transition between colors, and apparently it's one of the things that makes the Mona Lisa so impressive, with chiaroscuro, which is the contrast between darkness and light. And then they added linear perspective to create depth within the image and carefully measured compositional order and complex uses of colors with the goal of creating the perfect overall balance and beauty. It was being able to show that you could not only excel at a variety of painting skills and techniques, but the sum was even greater than the components, and you created something new and beautiful and something that meant something to people. And Simone Petterzano, Michelangelo's new teacher, he couldn't really do any of that. The high Renaissance painters had dominated everything that people knew about painting, and they created masterpieces not only in skill, but also size and grandeur so thoroughly that everyone thought they broke painting and that there was nowhere left to go. These moments, when collectively art hits a standstill and there's an existential crisis, these can be the moments of opportunity when people create something new and unreal. They're the ones who do the unexpected and the innovative. It's like in the last series when we talked about George Brock and Picasso incorporating space-time into their paintings. It was a thing people didn't even consider doing until it happened, and then it changed everything. But sometimes these moments are seized in a way that can result in years of absolute dog shit because people are trying way too hard for the next best thing, and they latch on to the first thing that comes their way. And then one day you wake up, and everybody's trapped in nonsense. It's not really healthy, and you're not really sure how you got there. It's the rebound relationship in art. And that's exactly what happened here. The relationship with the Renaissance was so good, and the heartbreak was so strong when it was over, that artists rebounded with some really questionable nights out. The art movement called Mannerism began in the 1520s, right after the High Renaissance, and it produced a few decades of paintings that are really just very upsetting to look at. Mannerism rejected everything about the High Renaissance, the harmony, the idyllic proportions, and the desire for perfection. It was a painting style that used disproportionate bodies, irrational settings, odd colors, and unclear topics to create this confusing but maybe oddly beautiful scene. And the choices you make in that scene and in that painting, the things that you make weird or different, that's when people get to know the artists, where his or her statements are made. There was much more artistic expression in Mannerism than the High Renaissance. 
I like the theory behind it, the idea that if people thought art already hit its zenith, then throw away all the rules and do the opposite and see where that gets you. Again, though, that's in theory. In practice, it's a little different. What it can ultimately result in, if left unchecked, is the church commissioning paintings of the Madonna and child scene, and mannerist painters would create disproportionate Jesuses with super long arms and legs, and it doesn't look expressionistic or somehow more religious, it just looks gross as shit. And they almost all did the thing where Jesus looks like an adult little man, but now he's got a tiny head and really long arms and legs, it's just weird. And I'm going to post a mannerist painting. It's called Madonna with the Long Neck by an artist named Parmigianino from 1535. And it is a terrifying image. And I'm also going to post a painting by an artist named Giorgio Vasari called The Adoration of the Magi from 1566 to 1567. It's a great representation of mannerism, and it's really helpful to get a sense of what kind of garbage was out there in order to appreciate where this story goes. You'll see that the colors are all loud and kind of gaudy, and a bunch of extra shit is in there, and there's an odd amount of detail paid to people's various belts, and a bunch of people have capes. The painting is clearly more about the first century fashion show happening, and Jesus plays a secondary role as a terrifying-looking child with male pattern baldness. Mannerism is almost a caricature of the thing it's supposed to be, the thing it represents, and Simone Petterzano was a mannerist artist, and he was not a very good one. I'll post one of Petterzano's Madonna and Child paintings so you can see. He said he was a student of Titian's, but I think there's actually some doubt historically about that. In the very beginning of the apprenticeship, Petterzano taught Michelangelo the basics of her traditional Renaissance art education, like how to draw, paint in fresco, and grind pigments. But a number of the more advanced techniques, especially the mannerist techniques that Petrozano would have taught Michelangelo, don't appear to have impacted his art much later on, and this could be for a few reasons. The first is that there were a bunch of context clues that point to Michelangelo being an incredibly bad student and not taking things seriously, and there was no incentive for Petrozano to say anything or deal with it because he's getting free money at that point. And the other issue is, he's learning from a guy who is not only not talented, but it was during a time when the church, which was one of the largest and richest commissioners of art, wasn't cool with Petrozano's mannerism style anymore. At the Council of Trent, there were several restrictions ordained about what was acceptable in Catholic art, as the church recommitted itself to being Christ-like and the organization for the poor and most needy, and its art needed to reflect that piousness as well. There was this quote from a guy named St. Jerome that I was reading about, and he was a celebrated Christian back in the 4th century. In his early years, he was a well-known, debaucherous, trying-to-get-laid kind of guy, until he was saved by Jesus, and he quickly rose up as a natural leader in those early years in Rome after the Edict of Milan. And as one of the church leaders in Rome, surprisingly, he had this, it was almost like an inner council of really smart, educated, and influential women. And a lot of them were widows, which was a really tough position for women to be in back then. But we're not going to saint this guy yet, because just like a lot of bosses, he couldn't keep his dick in his priestly vestments, and Jerome got inappropriate with one of the widows, and he was fired. So Jerome might not have been the best guy, but personal failures aside, he did say something one time about what it meant to truly be a Christian, to live like Jesus, and I actually kind of love this. Quote, He whom we look down upon, whom we cannot bear to see, the very sight of whom causes us to vomit, is the same as we, compacted of the same elements. Whatever he suffers, we can also suffer. So next time you look at somebody and not only become nauseous at the very sight of them, but the nausea is so uncontrollably intense that it overpowers your sense of social decorum and decency to the point where you puke right there, be that person's friend. 
And if that visual can encapsulate the lifestyle that the powerful church, in whose hands your soul rests, demands of you, that's also what the church wants people to capture in their art. Broadly speaking, the, the, the spirit of that, because it still can't be profane or detract from the devotion to Jesus. And these new restrictions, the ones that came out of the Council of Trent, they were being enforced in Milan by none other than religious icon, saver of Milan from greater plague devastation, and not a fun guy at parties, Carlo Borromeo. He even wrote a book in 1577 called Instructiones Fabricae Supelectalis Ecclesiasticae, and there was a whole chapter on sacred images and paintings. Religious paintings were now to be for purposes of devotion only and should help facilitate devotion. There should be no artistic license and it should encourage piety, avoid false teachings, and above all, cannot include, quote, whatever is profane, base or obscene, dishonest or provocative. And if an artist got cute and maybe tried to sneak a dick or two hidden in the background or included something risque in a religious painting, there were potential fines and punishments. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. But sometimes you think you want something, and when someone gives you exactly what you said you wanted, but it's a little bit more or different than you thought you meant, it can be jarring for a bunch of reasons. So hold on to that idea as we dig deeper into the story. It is almost impossible that Michelangelo didn't see this turning of the tide with counter-reformation religious art, especially being around the business side where he could see what was accepted and rejected by the church and why. Because at the end of the day, this is still a business and this is a transactional relationship. And the church paid extremely well if you could secure a commission, execute timely and effectively, and create something that would make their church or whatever it was a destination point for Catholics. His work with Petrozano, learning about art and feeling the influence of Carlo Borromeo on the profession, we should really think of all of that stuff as the daytime workings of Michelangelo's time in Milan. At night, he was exposed to the more interesting aspects of what the city had to offer, the other side that he's now old enough to understand. There were a lot of single men in Milan back then. The popular thing for men to do was stay single and not get married. And the last thing you want is a lot of unmarried men in your city, a city that has a military and arms manufacturing background, because people's interactions got violent and a lot of times there were blades involved. And because there were a lot of single men, there were equally as many courtesans and sex workers. And sex work in these cities becomes a crucial component to their survival. It's why the church cracked down on it, but not too badly. You can't give roving hordes of single men swords and knives and then outlaw transactional sex. Your city would destroy itself inside of two weeks. And the strict religious rule of the city didn't actually stop crime generally. It just pushed it further under the cover of night and into the city underbelly. And nighttime in all of these cities was just a complete disaster. So in addition to the underground sex business, there was a whole world of organized crime. On June 7th, 1588, tragedy struck the Maurices again when Michelangelo's younger brother Giovanni Pietro died. And I was shocked it took this long, but eventually one of those kids was going to die. And pretty soon after that, clues point to Lucia contracting some sort of long-term illness. On September 25th, 1589, Michelangelo went back to Caravaggio as his apprenticeship was ending. And over the next year or so, the Marisi family starts to get their affairs in order and sell property and land that they didn't need anymore. And on October 20th, 1590, Lucia made a will saying all the remaining children, Giovanni Battista, Michelangelo, and Bonus Caterina, would get an equal share of the estate. And then a month later, Lucia died. So the timing of everything hints that she probably had some sort of identifiable long-term fatal disease like tuberculosis. 
Giovanni Battista got some land and two houses and promised to pay bonus Katerina's dowry of 200 lira, and she got some land as well. Michelangelo didn't want any of his family's land, and he took a cash payout of 600 scudi, which was, again, irresponsible conversion. It would get us to like $30,000. By the time all the affairs are in order, it's the middle of 1592 and Michelangelo is 21 years old. And by taking the cash and not any land, and also ensuring that he had no responsibilities to his family after, it indicated that he was ready to move on, really from everybody. Michelangelo Morisi then disappears for the rest of 1592. We don't know what the hell he did, but there are no records of him being involved in art or the church, and he wasn't conscripted into any military. He is just underground. When he finally pops back up towards the end of 1592, the 600 scudi that he had from the sale of his family's land is gone and he is fleeing Milan. The only evidence we have to explain why Michelangelo was fleeing the city is in the notes of one of his earliest biographers, a guy named Giulio Mancini who knew Michelangelo well later in life. Mancini wrote down disjointed notes in the margins of the original manuscript copy of the biography he wrote, which is now held at the Marciana Library in Venice, and he wrote down, quote, They committed a murder. Prostitute tough guy gentleman. Tough guy hurts gentleman. Prostitute slashes insult into the skin with knife. Policeman killed. They wanted to know what the accomplice is. He was in prison for a year, and then he wanted to see his property sold. In prison, he didn't confess. Unquote. Another early biographer, who was also a contemporary, comes right out and says it. Quote, Being disturbed and contentious, he ground colors in Milan, and because he had killed one of his companions, he fled the country. But we can't fully trust that second biographer, and later on, we are going to learn who that is and why we can't trust him. The artist who will eventually be known in history as Caravaggio is being chased out of Milan, a city that is the center of the Counter-Reformation, but also has a rich underbelly of debauchery, crime, and violence. And we're at the stage of his life when we can start calling him Caravaggio. He is maybe prepared to be an artist, but probably not. And he maybe killed a guy. But he may not have, but he definitely didn't not kill that guy. Caravaggio is entering the greater world after years of hyper-concentrated doses of death and misery, and surrounded by the poverty, grittiness, and debauchery of urban Milan, but also being in a position to observe and reap the benefits of the upper class. And it's this exposure to and ability to live in both of these worlds that will mold the man he becomes and also the art he creates, and we haven't even gotten to the good parts yet. That maybe murder, that was just a little aperitif. This is before the bulk of the paper trail on this guy's ridiculousness. And we haven't even touched on the stuff about balls yet. So that's it for now. I hope everyone's having fun with this one. It's a world I never imagined rummaging through. And next episode, we're going to hear about where Caravaggio ends up after fleeing Milan, who he meets, and what exactly he gets into. If you're enjoying the show and want to help out, uh, head over to the Apple Podcast app. It's the purple icon that looks like a, a weeble casually wearing a sombrero. And take a few seconds to rate and review. And that's about it. Uh, I got nothing else. Uh, so take care, everybody, and I will talk to you soon. <laughs>